0: All right, well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, uh, you can find that on page 921 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at verse 25, and then we're going to be reading on into verse 3 of chapter 13, so kind of crossing two chapters here, uh, finishing up this last verse in chapter 12, and then covering the first three verses of chapter 13. Now, if I were to ask you to describe a missional church, how would you answer? How would you define a missional church? Give me a second to think about that. Uh, Some might say that a missional church is a church that is missions-focused, the kind of church that prioritizes the sending and supporting of missionaries into places that need the gospel. Others might say that a missional church is a church that is dedicated to reaching the community around it, to show the love of Christ to others through acts of mercy, being quick to meet other people's needs. Now, undoubtedly, those are things that we see in the scriptures, describing the things, some of the things that the church is called to do. But I don't think that either of those definitions ultimately or fully account for what it means to be a missional church. A missional church, I would argue, is a church that is defined by obedience to the mission that God has given it through Christ. That is to say that a church that is on mission is a church that is committed to obeying the great commission that we have received from King Jesus, which is to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us to do. Uh, There are many things that Christ commands his people to do, but this really is the key command that defines the mission of the church itself. I think Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert put it really well, pretty simply, actually, when they say, We go... We proclaim, we baptize, we teach, all to the end of making lifelong, die-hard disciples of Jesus Christ who obey everything He commanded. Now, it should be clear from what we've seen in the book of Acts as we've been making our way through it, that the early church saw making disciples as their key task. Up until this point, we have seen how Christ was working through his church to expand his kingdom uh, from Jerusalem to into Judea and into Samaria, and then progressively into other places in the world, places like Antioch, which is where we're at this morning. As we come to the end of chapter 12, and as we press on here into chapter 13, what we're seeing is another kind of new phase in the life of the church. The kingdom is expanding again. And the church in Antioch becomes the launch point for taking the good news of the gospel into some new places. Places that I don't think that people really would have anticipated up until this point. This is an important moment in the history of the church. And Luke has recorded it for us, not merely to just explain to us how Saul and Barnabas came to be in places like Paphos and Iconium and Lystra, but really to show us how God was working to expand the kingdom of Christ into the world. Luke is calling our attention here to the priority that Jesus has set for his people and the example uh, what, I, what we see of the church in Antioch as it committed itself to that task is very helpful for us as we think about what it means to be faithful to answer his call on our lives here and now as a church. So, let's begin, as always, by reading our text together. If you will, please stand with me out of respect for God's word and follow along with me as I read from Acts chapter 12 starting verse 25 and then on into verse 13, verse 3 of chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their task, their, their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. The church in Antioch provides us with a remarkable display of the power of the gospel and the effectiveness of the work of Christ. In just a very short amount of time, Antioch went from being a place with zero gospel presence to being a place that hosted a thriving church that was growing and maturing. God used this church in particular to play a key role in supporting the church in Jerusalem when it was in a time of intense persecution. And now we see that God was using this church to play a key role in expanding the gospel out to new places. Uh, The church in Antioch really gives us a good model for understanding what it means to be a church on mission. And in our time this morning, what I want to do is just to unpack three things that we see about the church in Antioch to help us better define and understand God's priority for us as we seek to be a faithful church ourselves. So in our time this morning, I want to unpack three ways we're called to be a church on mission. So a church on mission, a missional church, is committed to being the church together and is committed to be the church together. Second, a missional church is committed to sending disciple makers out. It sends disciple makers out. And third, we see that a missional church supports those that are called to go. It supports those who call are called to go. So let's begin by looking at what it means, what a missional church does to be the church together. In, in verse 25, Luke tells us that after Barnabas and Saul had completed their service to the church in Jerusalem, having delivered that gift uh, that, that, that the, the believers in Antioch had gathered together to send to be distributed by the elders in Jerusalem, uh, they returned back to the church in Antioch. Now, Luke doesn't say exactly how long they spent in Jerusalem. I'm sure that they were eager to, to get back and continue their service in Antioch, but we know that they were at least there long enough for Paul to, to meet with James, Peter, and John. Although, we're not exactly sure which James um Paul is said or Saul uh, is said to have met with Uh, in Galatians 2 uh, and just just as a side note because this is about to happen next week when we get into chapter 13 we're going to see all of a sudden Saul is no longer being referred to as Saul but as Paul and we'll talk about why that happens Um, but they're interchangeable names so forgive me if I slip into one over the other Um, but in Galatians 2 Paul, also known as Saul, tells us how he and Barnabas got to give this gift to the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and he also records about how he met with some of the, uh, the what he calls the, the pillars of the church there, and that he set the gospel that he had been preaching uh, before those men. The gospel he had been speaking to the Gentiles in order to make sure, he says, that he was not running or had not run in vain. Now, Paul didn't get the gospel that he preached from these men, but he was willing to allow himself to be held accountable by these other brothers. He says that when he did this, these brothers added nothing to him. Uh, Rather, they rejoiced in his ministry, recognizing that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, even as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews. And all they really asked him to do was to continue to remember the poor, which Paul says was the very thing he was eager to do. Now, it's possible during that time that he and Barnabas were still in the city when James and Peter were arrested, although it's equally as possible that they had already started making their way back to Antioch. Uh, we really could read verse 25 either way. Luke's aim here is really not so much to give us a steady timeline as it is to shift our focus back from the events of what was happening in Jerusalem to what was now about to take place in the church in Antioch. Uh, So he tells us uh, how they returned. And he also tells us about how when they returned, they did not come alone. John, whose other name was Mark, the very Mark, whose mother had opened her home to host those believers who had gathered together to pray for Peter while he was in prison, came along with Saul and Barnabas. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us exactly why he came with them. Uh, We can guess that he probably uh, came to assist them in their ministry at Antioch, and we learn later that while he initially went with them on their first missionary trip, he did not last for the whole trip. And we'll get into that uh, as we continue making our way through Acts. Uh, Mark really is a very interesting guy who shows up here. He also shows up in Paul's second letter to Timothy, his letter to Philemon, and then also in 1 Peter. So he's mentioned throughout the New Testament in several places. And it's thought that this is the same Mark who recorded the gospel of Mark, which we have in our Bibles. Luke mentions him here in particular uh, partially because Mark is going to play a a really uh, unintentional big part uh, in kind of causing a split between Saul and Barnabas in Acts 15. So he's a guy you need to know about, although he's not the focus of our passage right now. Now, Luke tells us that when Saul, Barnabas, and Mark arrived back in Antioch, they jumped right back into the work of caring for the church there. Together with three other men, Saul and Barnabas continued to teach and to preach and to pastor the church that was there. Now Luke lists uh, three other men in verse 1, introducing them as prophets and teachers. This included Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen. Now, outside of these verses we 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 really don't have very much information at all about these three men. Uh, Simeon, it's thought, may have been from Africa. Uh, it is very possible that this is also Simeon of Cyrene, who is mentioned in Luke uh, chapter 23, verse 26, as the father of Alexander and Rufus. And if that is the case, then we would understand that he is actually the man who the Romans pressed into service to carry Jesus' cross through the streets of Jerusalem. It's possible this could be someone else, but there does seem to be a little bit of a connection there so that if that were the case, uh, you can imagine what it must have been like to hear this man preach you. He would have seen things firsthand. Now, Lucius, on the other hand, is a very common Roman name. Some commentators speculate that this could be a reference to Luke, since uh, Lucius is, we, we translate that over actually to Luke, um, but we don't know that, and it was a very common name, so it's hard to say anything really particular about him. Menean, on the other hand, we are told, is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which suggests that he had actually been raised and raised up, or at least adopted, or at least been a close companion of Herod Antipas, who is uh, not a good guy. So this is a very interesting conglomeration of guys, um, but it's, it's clear that God's grace has been working in a powerful way through their lives. As we look at the church in Antioch, the key thing you need to notice, I think, is that he was stacked with faithful teaching and preaching. And Luke means for us to understand that the church in Antioch was coming together regularly to receive God's Word, to disciple and to be disciple, to seek God in worship, prayer, and even fasting together. They were living out their faith as one. And I'm certain that while the church in Antioch must have missed Barnabas and Saul when they took their leave and traveled to Jerusalem to bring the gift they had gathered to the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, We can't say that God didn't provide for the church's growth and their edification in their absence. Uh, and what we, what we see here is that Christ truly did hold center stage in the church in Antioch. And as a result, the church was living together and it was thriving together. Luke records the names of these men who were leading the church in Antioch, but his purpose isn't so much to draw attention to them as it is to give us a glimpse into the vibrant life of the church there. Luke describes this church uh, definitively. It is the church in Antioch. The church in the city was was not just a bunch of believers who were loosely associated with each other. No, they were committed to each other. They were meeting together. They were, they were coming together regularly and purposefully to sit under God's word, to respond together to God in worship and praise. They were coming together to pray. They were coming together as with one body, uh, with with one mind and one purpose, which was the glory of Christ, they were coming together to disciple one another and and to grow to be discipled. Presumably, uh, Luke doesn't say it, but we would assume they were observing the ordinances as well, just as the other churches in the New Testament would have been doing. Luke gives us the names of these men who were leading the church at Antioch, but what he really intends to emphasize to us in his description here is. The life of the church in Antioch. It, it, was, it was while the church was being the church that God's call came to them to send Barnabas and Saul out for this work he had set apart for them to do. That's, that's not a small thing. Discipleship is meant to be something that happens within the context of the local church. It's, the local church is the coming together of the body of Christ. And the members of the body of Christ grow and thrive together in it. The evidence of that in the scriptures is clear and evident in at least three ways. It's the first place it is evident is in the commands that God gives us as individual believers. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25 exhort us, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Likewise, he says, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Paul instructs us in Romans 12, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Likewise, Jesus calls us to love God and to love one another. In fact, he says that our love for one another will be what identifies us and distinguishes us from the world around us. That sort of building up in love is meant to happen in every part of our lives, but we really do learn to do it in the fellowship of the body of Christ. The second evidence in scripture that we see for the role the local church is supposed to play in that is in the gifting of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, He poured out His Spirit on His church as the guarantee of our hope. He also gave us the Holy Spirit to equip us to live out our lives in faith. The Holy Spirit also binds believers together in one body. And again, in Romans 12, Paul warns us not to think Highly of ourselves, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. As he describes the local church, he calls it one body which is composed of many members, not all of which have the same function. He tells us that the Holy Spirit gives gifts that differ according to the grace of God and the need of the body as a whole. Those gifts are never given to exalt the person who receives them. They are always given for the good of those who God has brought them together with. That's part of God's good design for the local church. He has so equipped the church with the Holy Spirit to make us centered on serving each other, showing us His design for why we really cannot afford to neglect coming together as one, why it's so important for us to have this time together. The third example that we see of the church across across the Scriptures also teaches us the importance of coming together for discipleship. Besides the Gospels and the book of Acts, All of the books of the New Testament are either written directly addressing a distinct local church or they at least mention one. The early church did not see their gathering as something that was optional. They they saw it as vitally necessary for their growth in Christ, something that was essential in their obedience to His commands. Now, the reason I want to make this point to you is not because I want you somehow to think that your involvement in church is what makes you a Christian or what saves you. That could not be further from the truth. But what I do want you to see is that the local church is a vital thing. God has designated the local church to be one of the primary vehicles of our sanctification. Jesus gave authority not to individual leaders in the church, but to the church itself. His Holy Spirit equips the church for that work. The gathered church plays an essential role in our growth into Christ, and it is crucial to our mission. If if we're to be faithful as a church... Then we need to do two things. First, we need to recognize the goal of the church, which is to make disciples. But second, we need to commit ourselves to, together for that work. Mission, missions, as we'll see in a minute, plays a key role in Christ's calling on our lives. But obedience to the mission of Christ starts here, seeking to build one another up in grace and love and in the truth of the gospel. It is vital that we come the church regularly, not simply seeking, seeking to receive the, from the body, but also perhaps more importantly, seeking to give to others, seeking to, to see them grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, seeking to motivate and encourage one another in obedience to Him. That is where being the church on mission, a missional church, really starts. It starts right here, right now. Even as it starts here, though, it also has a tendency to be outward as well. And that brings us to our second point. A missional church sins. Now, while the church in Antioch was being the church, while it was gathered together to do the work that Jesus had called it to do, something special happened. One day, Luke says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, there are a number of things I want to point out to you about this uh, command. The first thing is that this command we see came directly to the church. Uh, Notice that. Before we look specifically at what God said, we need to notice who God says this to. God did not say, Barnabas and Saul... I have work for you to do. It's time to wrap things up, say your goodbyes, and it's time to leave. No, the command to set Barnabas and Saul apart for this work was directed at the body of believers that was with them. It came to them, we see, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. That is when the Holy Spirit said this. Now, I'm led to think that this was less likely a general impression that fell on the church and more likely a word that was spoken to them by one of the men that Luke has just mentioned. After all, he's mentioned five uh, different people who are prophets and teachers. One way or another, this wasn't a private message. It was a command to set these two important leaders who were in the church apart that they could go and continue this work of disciple making elsewhere, preaching the gospel to people in places that had not yet heard the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In setting Saul and Barnabas apart to go and to do this, the church was releasing them for their, from their responsibilities there, and they were recognizing that God was calling them to go somewhere else. Now, I can imagine. difficult it would have been to do that. I've said a lot of goodbyes to a lot of people over the years who God was taking from, from one place to another for the sake of the gospel. And it's a bittersweet moment because you rejoice in what God is doing and you rejoice because of the blessing that you know those people are going to be in the places he's taking them. But it is hard to say goodbye. It is hard to be, I think in some ways, it's almost harder to be left behind than it is to go. And we have to recognize that. This, this would not have been something that you're saying, oh, okay, whatever, they just got back, we didn't need them anyway. No, th- there would have been a real sense of the heaviness of this. Saul and Barnabas had poured themselves into this church. And now the church was being called to let them go. They were having to trust that God, in sending them somewhere else, was going to continue to provide for them, even as they did this, through the ministry of other men. What's more, they were, as a church, exercising a certain amount of authority to send Barnabas and Saul out. Barnabas and Saul weren't going on their own authority. They were going in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit with the blessing and the intentional sending out of the local church where they were serving at the time. We do not call ourselves into ministry. We submit ourselves to the calling and the will of God. Clearly, God has appointed the local church to play a role in the expansion of the gospel. And when we think about that, it it really makes sense the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. In giving this command to the church, the church in particular, we see that the Holy Spirit was emphasizing the glory of Christ over the glory of Saul and Barnabas. They went in obedience with the authority of the church they served. Now, the second thing to notice here is that as the church set Saul and Barnabas apart, they were sending them to do the work which God had appointed them to do. The divine calling was matched with a divine work. Barnabas and Saul weren't going out to just go pursue their own ends somewhere. They were going in obedience to God to do what he had commanded them to do. Now, Luke doesn't specify what work this is, but we can clearly see later on, as we continue to read what they did, that this work was specifically to take the gospel to the nations, to, to make disciples and to plant churches that continued this work on in new places the work that God calls Saul and Barnabas to was the same work which Christ commissioned his disciples with in Matthew 28. And I want to bring that to your attention because it's important for us to see the priority of missions abroad. We've talked about what the goal of the church, why we need to gather, why that makes us a missional church that begins here, but as we think about missions abroad, uh, we need to see that that same priority that is supposed to reign over the church locally in here must reign over the church as it goes out to the world. The mission of missions is the glory of Christ among the nations. The church has been called to a task, not merely to try and relieve the symptoms of suffering, but to deal with the root cause of that suffering, which is Sin. And we deal with that primarily through the proclamation of the gospel. Missions on a global scale holds the same priority of the church on the local scale, which is to make disciples. Now there are many creative avenues to enter unreached places with the purpose of sharing the love of Christ with others. But at the end of the day, biblical missions is Christ-centered, gospel-driven, and church-oriented. Digging wells has its place. But unless we share the living water with the world around us, we are not doing the work that God has called us to do. I am, I am so thankful for the missionary partners that we have as a church. Because if there's one thing that has stands out to me about them, it's that their primary goal is to get the gospel to those who have not heard it. And what's more, they understand that the priority of the church where they are is the same mission that we have been called to here in Sheboygan, which is reaching a lost and dying world with the light of the gospel. That, that is a rich blessing. And it's something to praise God about, even as we pray for them. It is important that as we commit ourselves to pray for these missionary partners that we have, and even as we consider if we were to ever bring on new missionary partners, that we need to pray for them first and foremost that God will guard that commitment in their hearts. It's also important as time goes on us to pray that God will continue to raise up new missionaries who are committed to that same task as well and the third thing I want to point out to you here about God's calling about his command here it really is has to do with who he called God did not call Simeon he did not call Lucius he did not call Manan he called Saul and Barnabas I think about what it must have been like to have heard the Lord call these two men away from the church at Antioch again. If, If I had been in this church, I'll tell you, I would have had a really hard time letting them go, at least on a personal level. I mean, these are the best and the brightest. Barnabas had been there really from the very beginning, and the church had just grown and thrived because of his encouraging and his teaching. It also grown and thrived with his partnership with Saul in the ministry there. And that is a hard thing. It's so easy to get comfortable in that sort of scenario. And it's difficult to say goodbye. But here's the thing. The church in Antioch, it wasn't Barnabas' church. It wasn't Saul's church. The church in Antioch belonged to Christ. And in saying goodbye to these beloved brothers, the church was being put in a position to exercise faith, to show that they trusted God, that He was going to continue to meet their spiritual needs through the preaching and the teaching that came from other men. It is, it is so easy for a church or for a ministry to get wrapped up around a person or around a personality. I, I've been there in a church before that just absolutely exploded in growth, particularly because someone with a big name and a big reputation became a member, okay? I remember the discussion that happened when the elders said, hey, look, so-and-so wants to become a member. And we need to just let you know about this because this has a real potential to change the face of the church because we know it's going to attract people to our church specifically because they want to be where they are. And we need to make you aware of that. I've seen how intentional, how, how much intentional work had to be put into paying attention to the, making sure the church was remaining faithful to the mission of Christ and not becoming a place where a celebrity was. The purpose of the church does not revolve around one per- person standing at a pulpit or sitting in a pew. I, I've seen churches come unraveled as a pastor retires or leaves showing that there was more commitment to that pastor than it was to being the church itself so brothers and sisters let's remind ourselves the point of the church is the glory of christ not one pastor not one theologian not the music leader it's about christ it's about his mission And we have this promise that he will always raise up and equip the church for what it needs, when it needs it, just as God did here. I'm not going to say that the church at Antioch didn't miss having Saul and Barnabas with them on Sundays. But we do need to see that the church was bigger than the ministry of just two men. And God did not leave the church shorthanded. There were three other men who were committed to this work who carried it on. The mission of the church at Antioch was not about Saul, it was not about Barnabas, it was about Christ. And that needs to be the mission of every church everywhere. Now, that brings us to our third point this morning, which is I see and understand that a missional church is a church that supports. God calls Saul and Barnabas to go and to do this work while the church was together, worshiping the Lord and fasting together. And we're told that after they had received this word, the church responded really in a similar way. They, we're told, he says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now the key thing to notice here is that the church in Antioch was they obeyed the leading of the Holy Spirit. But it's also important to notice the manner in which, in which they obeyed it. They, that we see that as they received this word, they took steps to honor God in the way that they set Barnabas and Saul apart for this work. In particular, Luke tells us that the church fasted. They were fasting when the Holy Spirit came and told them to do this, and then they fasted after they received this word. A Fasting is one of those things that you really rarely ever hear Christians talk about, especially Baptists. And yet it is mentioned in the scriptures quite a bit. Uh, one author I read pointed out that fasting is actually mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned in the Bible more than baptism is. In Matthew 6, Jesus actually gives us instructions for how we are to fast, not putting on a gloomy face to draw attention to ourselves, but fasting in such a way that while others may not notice, our heavenly Father does. In giving us those instructions, it stands to reason that Jesus expected that we would fast. In fact, he says as much in Mark 2. A biblical fast is really when we voluntarily, not being constrained, but voluntarily abstain from something, typically food, for a spiritual purpose. Uh, We have biblical examples of people fasting to strengthen their fervency in prayer, to seek God's guidance to express their grief, to seek deliverance, to seek repentance, to humble themselves before God, to overcome temptation, and to seek uh, concern for the will and the work of God. Denying ourselves food tends to sharpen our sense of dependency on God, and it honors God because it seeks satisfaction in Him alone. Fasting sharpens our gratitude to God, and it defies the gluttonous nature of our flesh. Uh, To quote one author, full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. So fasting is a powerful tool for fighting the desires of the flesh. It builds self-discipline up by helping us to exercise our faith. Luke doesn't say why the church was fasting before the word of God came to them, uh, but I suspect, given the priorities we've already seen at work in this church, that they were doing this specifically to seek God's guidance, praying that God would continue to expand his church to the nation's. I'm inclined to think, though I have no evidence to really say for sure, that God called Barnabas and Saul to this work in direct response to those prayers and the worship and the fasting of the church. I'm also struck by the way that the church responded in obedience to God, committing themselves as they received this word, not just to taking action, but to fasting and praying before they laid their hands on on these two beloved brothers to send them out. Uh, The church didn't just slap them on the back, hand them a loaf of bread, and say, God be with you, brother. I'll be praying for you. No, they committed themselves to seeking the Lord on their behalf. The will of the Lord had been made clear to them, but that didn't stop the church from going before the Lord to labor in prayer before Him on their behalf. This is such a beautiful way, a beautiful picture, I think, of the way that the local church here needs to support the ministry of the Word both here and abroad. You know, we we pray for a different missionary partner each week. And I want you to understand, those are not wasted prayers. If we take anything from this passage, we need to understand the urgency of how important it is for us to pray for the people that God has put us in partnership with. Perhaps even to fast as we pray for them, asking that God would do the same work that we long for Him to do among us there as well. Supporting our missionary partners takes many different forms. It it can involve supporting them financially. It can involve sending them encouraging emails. Perhaps even phone calls or, or Zoom calls in our current day and age. It might even look like going over there to just visit them and encourage them and just rejoice firsthand in what God is doing. But above all, we must commit ourselves to supporting them through prayer like this. William Carey, I know I've mentioned him before. He's one of the fathers. He's been called the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey once told the men who had agreed with him for the need of missionaries to go and take the gospel to Asia. The church was in agreement. We need to send people to bring the good news to these people who have never heard it. And there's an opportunity. He told those same men, he said, I will go down, but you must hold the rope. He wasn't just talking about sending money. He was talking about prayer. I love that image. Because I think it captures so well how important it is, not just for us to launch men and women out into the world with the message of the gospel, but how important it is for us to labor in supporting them in any way that God would have us to do. That is vital, and it is a key part of being a missional church. A missional church sins, but it doesn't forget. It continues to labor on missions is something that we're all called to do, whether God calls us to go, whether God calls us to support. I, I've really enjoyed, in particular, I, I've, I enjoy a relationship with all of our missionary partners, but especially when I get to talk with Josh Moore, it is just so clear the connection that we have and the, the, the feeling of connection between the two churches that we serve at. It's, it's uh, getting to listen to him talk about just the pastoral things that are going on, some of, the, some of the really intense situations, some of the most glorious situations, and getting to just talk with each other and to enjoy the fact that we're serving the same king with the same mission, the same commission, and we're in different places, we're doing the same work and that we get to pray for that and support that even as they are praying for us. That is a wonderful blessing. And so as we think through what it means to be obedient as a church, we need to think about what it means to be missional. And we've seen three ways we're called to do that. A church that is missional is a church that is committed to the mission it has received from Christ our King. We see that it is called to start here. That it is called also to send out and that is always called to support. So may God give us grace to pursue that together in the week ahead, but also in the year to come. Let's pray. Lord, as we think this morning about the example that you've given us in the church in Antioch, Father, it's it's easy to let our imaginations run wild to what it must have been what it must have been like to have been gathered together, to to hear this word from you and to to think about what it must have been, the sadness to be departed from these brothers and yet the joy of knowing that you had purposely set them apart and were calling them to bring the good news of Christ to places that had never heard it. Uh, You called Saul and Barnabas to, to walk a path that was very difficult, Lord, and yet at every step of the way you provided. And Lord, we can see right here how one of the ways you used the local church, the church in Antioch, was through prayer for them. And and I know that they continued to pray for them as they were on their journey. And then in the weeks ahead, as we get to see their report, Father, they got to rejoice in what you did. And I pray, Father, as we think about our own situation, that we would be convinced and convicted in our own lives to live according to the good news of the gospel that we would live that out here, that we would be disciple-makers, not just, not, not just attenders, but disciple-makers, that we would sharpen one another and urge one another on, as your word instructs us, in this race, that we would pursue godliness, that we would kill sin in our lives, that we would fight the good fight of faith, that we would live in humility towards one another, and that we would love each other with the love of Christ. Father, as we pray for that for ourselves, we pray for the church that is, that is all over, scattered across the world. We thank you, Father, that by your providence, the sun never sets in the kingdom of Christ. And it will continue to be that way until he, he returns and all the world sees and knows that he is king. And in this time of your patience, Father, I pray that you would give your saints diligence to speak the word, to disciple one another, and to remain faithful no matter what comes. Father, we thank you for your enduring promises and the hope of Christ that does not disappoint. And we pray that we would exercise the love that he has shown us in the way we treat one another. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.